So my name is Rahel Bossen. I am actually from Ethiopia and have lived all around uh, Europe. And then the Lord kind of supernaturally led me to Kentucky, which was the last place that I thought that I would be. But um, So I finished my residency here at, in Kentucky in Louisville. And um, while I was here, I just felt a call to work with refugees because there was just a significant amount of need and didn't understand why there were so many refugees coming to Kentucky. I was thinking, Kentucky? Like, really? But So I started looking into it and come to find out that Kentucky is one of um, the states where refugees are resettled from the U.S. And so once I finished my residency, the Lord just uh, opened up a door for me to work with the University of Louisville. So I'm at the University of Louisville, and we've been starting this new program, a refugee health program at the university. So I'm going to be talking to you um, about that. Okay, but before we start, let's just um, come before the Lord in prayer. So, Father, you are just a great and awesome God um, who works through your people to fulfill your purpose. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity that we all have to come together and to share and to hear and to sharpen one another. Father, I just pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts and our ears and our minds so we can see you, so we can hear you, that we'd be willing to go where you lead. I'm open to hear your voice, Father. Um, be with me now. Give me strength as I talk. And uh, be glorified in all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, so the title of my talk, let me know if you can't hear me because I'm moving around and so I don't want to be stuck here. <laughs> so the title of my talk is Refugee Health from Flight to Resettlement, a Holistic Approach to Caring for Refugees. So my objectives are, I'm going to give you a brief background and definition on types of immigrants and refugees, and then I'll share with you kind of the current state of affairs that's going on right now um, in terms of the refugee crisis. And then I'll share with you the refugee process um, as it is here in the U.S. And then I'll talk a little bit about Kentucky, you know, who are the refugees coming to Kentucky and what's really their state of health. And then I'll uh, finish my talk by uh, talking about really how do we approach to caring for refugees? How do we care for them in a holistic way? All right. So uh, really, before I begin my talk, I want, to, I want you to meet Maria. She is a 45-year-old refugee that I recently saw in my clinic. Um, she's insulin-dependent diabetic. She has hypertension. She has hyperlipidemia. She has a palpable breast mass. She has a history of breast cancer. She has chronic back pain. She's on multiple medications, but she did not bring her medications with her from overseas, and she doesn't really know all of the medications that she's taking. But the ones that she does remember are not FDA approved in the U.S., and she's taking some kind of herbal remedies that we're not really sure of. Um, she can't sleep at night. She's anxious. She has a history of depression. And she's overwhelmed. She's tearful. Um, she's on some kind of antidepressants, but she doesn't really know the name of. She's separated from her home country. She has no job. She does not understand the U.S. healthcare system. She, her insurance is pending. She does not speak English. She has a special needs child, but no child care, and doesn't really not, does not even really know services available to her to access. She has no personal transportation, but does, and does not know how to use the public transportation system. And so here's Maria. She now comes to you as a new patient, but you can't even really access her recent visit to the ER because her name and date of birth have been entered differently into the system. So this really, with that, I can really welcome you into the world of refugee healthcare here um, in the U.S. So let me give you some brief background. 
So really, the definition of refugee was established back around 1951. Um, in the aftermath of World War II, there were a lot of European refugees that they did not know what to do with. So the United Nations assembled together and they formed the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And in that assembly, they came up with the official definition of a refugee. And it's been amended since then, but as it stands today, really a refugee is someone who is outside their country of origin and they're unable to return to their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, members uh, being a member of any kind of particular social group or political opinion. Now, an internally displaced person, those are people that meet the official definition of a refugee, but they're still within the bounds of their own country, and they haven't been able to cross into a recognized border, so they're still there. Um, so these are actually, this is a picture of, um, I don't know if I can explain, uh, Palestinian um, internally displaced people standing in line for food from a UN envoy. And then you have um, asylum seekers. So asylum seekers, um, those are also people that meet the definition of a refugee, but somehow they've been able to enter into, like, the U.S. through either a visitor's visa or a work visa or a student visa. And once they've entered into the United States, they say that they can't go back to their country of origin for the very same reasons that a refugee left their country. So because of being uh, afraid of being persecuted based on race, ethnic groups, religion, political opinion. So these are actually, this is a picture of um, Serbian migrant workers um, crossing illegally into Hungary through the unfinished Hungarian-Serbian um, border fence. So then that kind of leads me to, so what is going on in our world today? Um, this is a picture of hundreds of Burundian uh, refugees going on boat at night trying to flee to Tanzania. So really, as it stands today, there is about 65 million people have been forced to flee their homes. Um, of the 65, about 21 million of them are refugees. 40 million are internally displaced people and about 3.2 million are asylum seekers. And one report said that about 34,000 people a day have been forced to flee their homes due to conflict and persecution. So if we look at the trend of global displacement, um, you can see that back in like 1996, the number of refugees was well below 20 million, and the number of internally displaced people was well below 40 million. Um, but in, by 2015, the number of refugees is well above 20 million, and the number of internally displaced people is well above 60 million. So if we look at uh, major source countries for refugees, um, so Syria is by far now the largest um, uh, largest source where refugees are coming from. Um, up until 2014, it used to be Afghanistan, but now um, Syria is probably the greatest refugee crisis of our time, and that's what the U.S. Secretary General had said in one of his talks in Geneva. Um, by 2016, February, I think there was about 11 million Syrian refugees and internally displaced people. I think it was about 50% of the total Syrian population has been displaced. Um, and according to the UNHCR, about five to six million of them are um, actually children. 
And so other sources of refugees are Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, Eritrea. So these are really some of the top ten uh, sources from where refugees are coming from currently. So in terms of uh, major hosting countries, um, Turkey and Lebanon, Pakistan are really the top three um, countries that have been hosting refugees, um, followed by places like Kenya, Ethiopia, Jordan. Um, one report said that about 86% of the world's refugees are in developing nations. In developing nations. So if we look at, uh, in terms of asylum seekers, you know, we hear a lot on the news about Germany receiving a lot of Syrian refugees. Most of them are asylum seekers. They've crossed on boats to Greece and then have made their way into Germany. So Germany is now by far the largest, um, the country that hosts the largest number of asylum seekers, um, followed by um, the U.S., Russia, Sweden, Turkey, Australia are also among the top uh, places where there are asylum seekers. So when we talk about um, the U.S., um, between 2013 and 2015, these are really the top 10 countries from where refugees have been coming to the United States. In 2015, our top three countries were Burma, Iraq, and Somalia. Uh, we also had we saw patients from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, of the about 70,000 that came last year, 2.4% of those refugees were Syrians. So that leads me now to, like, what is the refugee process and how do they end up coming to the U.S.? Um, so this is a picture of um, a Syrian refugee kind of crying and praying after he arrived on shore at the Greek island of Lesbos. So usually there's really three options for refugees. Okay, so the first is voluntary repatriation, meaning that if any of the issues of war or persecution has, has been resolved, then they are able to return back to their country of origin. Okay? The second option is local integration. So if wherever they have fled to their, their secondary country, their host uh, in the refugee camps, they may be able to get rights to integrate into that host country and they can stay there. And then the third option is resettlement, where they resettle then into a third country. And really, usually less than 1% of the world's refugees are resettled into a third country. So then the refugee process goes something like this. So you have some kind of war, persecution, uh, violence um, that is causing so much unrest that you decide that the cost to flee and take the risk that journey is greater than the cost to stay. So then there's this mass exodus where people start fleeing and going to their neighboring countries. So once they arrive in their neighboring countries, they enter into a refugee camp. And once they're in the refugee camp, what they do is they apply to the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. That's the only governing body that can mandate international refugee status, and it's a very rigorous process. So once they've applied to the UNHCR, then less than 1%, like I said, end up being resettled to a third country like the United States, Canada, Australia, or other places. So in the U.S., what happens is once the number of refugees have been allocated to come to the U.S., then um, they're contacted by VOLACs or voluntary agencies. These are nonprofit agencies 
that have a cooperative agreement with the federal government to resettle refugees. And they actually have some presence in those refugee camps. So these voluntary agencies have partnerships with local refugee resettling agencies. So here in Kentucky, there are two main uh, resettling agencies, um, Catholic Charities and Kentucky Refugees, that actually funnels the newly arriving refugees to come and be resettled here. So really, life in the refugee camp is pretty dismal. Um, a lot of times, there's no freedom outside of the camps. It's often very unsafe and unsanitary conditions. Um, usually, there's one doctor per camp, and there could be up to 8,000 people in one camp. Um, there's a lot of violence, a lot of rape that's been reported in the camps. And really, time languishes in these camps. So if you would see a Bhutanese refugee or Burmese refugee, you find that they've been a refugee camp for 20, 30 years of their life. And they've actually had their children there. So their children, they don't even know the country from where their parents fled. And, um, and so they come here with really minimal knowledge, minimal literacy skills, because they've lived really pretty much most of their life um, in these camps. So since 1975, about... Three million refugees have been resettled in the U.S. So usually what happens is the president um, sets a limit each fiscal year for the number of refugees that are allowed to enter into the United States. So the, um, in 20, the, I guess the projection or what the president allowed for 2017 is to bring in 110 million, 110,000 refugees, which is really one of the largest numbers since 2011. I think since 2011 had plummeted down to about 20,000, and then last year it was about 70,000, and now it's 110,000. So that may change with a change in government now, but as it stands today, for 2017, 110,000 refugees um, will be allowed to come into the U.S. And there are usually three federal departments that are involved. It's the Department of State, Department of Homeland um, Security, and the Department of Health and Human Services. So um, the five states with the largest refugee population is Texas, California, New York, Michigan, and Florida. So Kentucky is the 12th in the nation in terms of uh, receiving new refugees. Um, in 2015, about 3,000 refugees arrived to Kentucky. And one of the reasons why Kentucky is becoming a preferred state is the whole refugee program is based on self-sufficiency. It's trying to get them here and make them as self-sufficient as possible, as soon as possible. So in Kentucky, there's a lot of factory jobs where refugees can work without uh, having to learn the language very well or have a lot of skills. So that makes Kentucky kind of like a preferred state where refugees are being resettled. Um, so usually before departure, um, all refugees receive uh, cultural orientation. Um, so this is to kind of give them some idea about the United States. So I just put this picture up here because I think it's really funny. So these are Burmese refugees, or Bhutanese refugees being oriented to the U.S. And you have this astronaut here in an open flea market, and you're thinking, that's not what I think of when I think of America. So you can see the kind of orientation they're getting, and then they come here and the level of shock as to how different life is here from how they knew life prior to coming to the U.S. So as part of also the process for them to come here, all refugees receive an overseas medical exam. And the purpose of these overseas medical exams is to identify Class A and Class B conditions. So these exams are um, done under a panel of physicians with IOM, or the Immigration, uh, the International Organization for Migration, with the CDC. They come up 
um, and examine them to identify Class A, Class B conditions. So Class A conditions are things that are considered inadmissible to the U.S. So those are things of public health um, significance, such as communicable diseases like Hansen's disease, leprosy, or active tuberculosis, active or untreated syphilis, or even um, violent mental health conditions are considered Class A. So that would prevent the refugee from coming to the U.S. So Class B conditions are conditions um, of medical significance, but they they just uh, require prompt follow-up once they arrive into the U.S. So things like diabetes or hypertension or malignancies or other kind of non-communicable diseases, you know, can fall under Class B conditions. And then depending where the refugees um, come from, they receive presumptive treatments for parasites, and then some uh, camps also provide immunizations. And then travel arrangements are made by the Department of Homeland Security. So this, I just put this picture here to show you that some things that we take so much for granted requires orientation for some of our refugees. So this is actually part of the orientation process where they're taught how to, use, uh, how to use a bathroom appropriately, at least how we use it here in the West. So from overseas to quarantine, so basically once they get their ticket to come to their destination state, all refugees have to go into quarantine at the first port of entry into the U.S. And um, in each airport, there's a CDC quarantine officer that actually sees them and clears them for their next flight. Um, so there's about 20 U.S. port of entries uh, where they have uh, quarantine stations. Those are places like New York City, San Francisco, Miami, Chicago. So once they're cleared, then they're able to go to their final destination state. So um, Kentucky is considered a Wilson Fish state. So Wilson, Wilson and Fish were senators from California. They came up with this program, and their, their purpose for coming up with this program is to try to ensure that refugees don't come here and end up on welfare. So uh, it's a program to help them become self-sufficient. So basically, um, the other part is that the state government in Kentucky has opted out of the refugee process. So the whole process is now run by a nonprofit agency through Catholic Charities called Kentucky Office of Refugees, or CORE. So that is really the office here in Kentucky that gets the federal funding to help resettle refugees at the local resettlement agencies. So there are three local uh, refugee resettlement agencies. Kentucky Refugee Ministries is located here in Louisville and Lexington, which is about an hour away from here. Then you have Migration Refugee Services under Catholic Charities located here in Louisville. And then you have the International Center, which are located in Bowling Green and Orangeboro, which are about an hour and a half or two hours away from, uh, from Louisville. So, so really, um, the local resettlement agencies that are designated by the U.S. government to provide direct resettlement services. So this really begins even before arrival. Once, the ref once they get documentation that these refugees or this family is coming, they start setting up an apartment for them because most of them come really with nothing. So they set up an apartment, they furnish the apartment with just minimal things. 
um, and then they go pick him up at the airport. And for every new arriving refugee, they try to prepare a warm meal for them. So they ask former refugees from that country to prepare some kind of meal, depend, no matter what time they come in. So usually they come in at like 1 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning at these crazy hours. So they pick them up. They provide furnished housing. Um, so And also part of the resettlement process, they provide mental health services, ESL classes. Um, they provide them with employment assistance. Um, some case management, cash, uh, cash assistance. Um, they provide cultural orientation and, um, and health assessment as well. So refugees are really eligible for all social programs that a U.S. citizen is eligible for. So they're eligible to work as soon as they arrive, um, and they're also on track for citizenship. So within the first year of arrival, they can apply for their green card, and then within five years of arrival, they can uh, apply to become U.S. citizens. And so now these resettlement services are provided only for eight months. So the idea is that within eight-month period, you'd have learned the language, gotten a job, navigated the healthcare system, and been completely independent and self-sufficient. So you can see how challenging that is. Now, there are cases where that eight-month period may be ex um, extended due to extenuating circumstances, but the whole premise of the program is within eight months for the refugees to establish complete self-sufficiency. That's through the Wolf and Fish program, so it's, yeah, so total in general. Um, and then the other interesting fact that I wanted to put on here is that refugees have to pay back the cost of their plane ticket. It's actually a loan from the Department of Homeland Security. So if you can imagine a Somali family with like seven or eight, you know, that come to the U.S. or a Syrian family of five or six, you know, it's, it's like $20,000, $30,000 or more loan that within, within six months they start having to pay. And the way that I found this out is I had a patient freaking out and coming to our clinic saying, I've got this bill. What is this bill? I don't know. Why do I have to pay this? And I'm looking, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interest-free loan, but it's still a bill. Like within six months that they arrived, the government started sending them a bill to, to pay for, for their plane tickets. So um, there are six health clinics that provide the initial health screening. Um, in, uh, in, in Louisville, uh, University of Louisville, the Global Health Center, Family Health Centers Americana, and Home of the Innocents, which is a pediatric clinic. Those are the three clinics here in Louisville that provide initial health screenings. And then the other three, Zip Clinic, Bluegrass Community Health Center, and the Green River District Health Department are all located in Orangeboro and Bowling Green. So basically, each refugee is eligible to receive a comprehensive health assessment that is really based on CDC guidelines. And um, it includes like review of all of their overseas medical records to see if there's anything that the panel of physicians have alerted us to. Um, it's testing for communicable diseases and parasites. Um, it's it's really testing for things that you would normally not screen for in a regular primary care new patient appointment. Um, so it also includes education about the U.S. healthcare system um, and just addressing special needs based on the refugee populations. Uh, we also do um, evaluation of their immunization records, and then we um, actually started providing mass immunizations for refugees um, every other week at the two different resettlement sites in, in Kentucky. Um, and then we also screen them for mental health issues because a lot of them have suffered a lot of trauma and mental health um, 
problems, and then we also refer them to subspecialists as needed. So this initial health screening is supposed to be done within the first 30 to 90 days of arrival. And the idea behind this is that it's it's going to help serve as a bridge to primary care. So if there are like urgent needs or issues that need to be addressed until they establish their insurance and get into primary care, we're trying to help bridge that gap. And so I've had patients that I've been called that a Syrian refugee was going to arrive within a week that had issues with some blood disorders. I saw her that week that she arrived. She, she had blasts in her cells, you know, concern for acute myeloid leukemia got her to Brown Cancer Center, sure enough, that's what she had. So these kinds of programs really help bridge those, those cases that need to be seen quickly and more urgently before they get really established to life in the U.S. So this is a picture of our immunization <laughs> clinic. Um, these are just some refugees uh, that uh, were, were coming to get immunized. Um, so really, uh, just a backstory on this. So what happened was a lot of times one of the challenges that refugees face is even though they're eligible for all uh, benefits that American citizens are eligible for, and like such as getting insurance, a lot of times their insurance is backlogged and they can't access their insurance as soon as they arrive. So children, you know, when, you, when we start plugging them into schools, they can't, they're not allowed to come into schools until their insurance is active. Now, if in, I mean, until their immunizations are active. But the problem is, like, pediatric clinics do not want to see the patients until they have an active insurance at hand, so they can't immunize them. So what was happening was that children weren't going to school, parents weren't going to work because they had to stay home with their kids, and it was creating this whole uh, issue. So we started doing these mass immunizations every other week where we start, we just be begin to give them the initial vaccines that they need, need so that kids can go into school and parents can work. And then from there, we end up having the follow-up with their primary cares in the community. So then uh, who are the refugees that are coming to, uh, to Kentucky? So this is a picture that was taken by my husband of a refugee boy in a refugee camp in Uganda years ago. So um, in 2015, uh, these were like the, our top 10 countries where refugees came from. Um, Cuba, uh, no, Cuba isn't really considered, they're not really considered refugees. They have a different process to coming into the U.S., but they still receive all the federal funding as a refugee would in order to be resettled. Um, so the Cubans really, there's a process called the Cuban-Haitian Entrant Program that was established back in 1980 during the Marielle Boat Crisis when there were floods of uh, Cubans and Haitians coming into South Florida. During that time, the government enacted this Cuban-Haitian program that allows Cubans and Haitians to be paroled and to come into the U.S. So most Cubans basically go through like Colombia, Venezuela, and kind of Galavan, end up going to Mexico and then walk into the U.S. and once, in the, once they're in the U.S., they say they're Cubans and then they're paroled in. So our largest number are Cubans, um, followed by the people from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, Iraq, Burma, Myanmar. Um, that's about 23, 24,000 that we saw. Uh, Five percent of the refugees that came to Louisville, that came to Kentucky last year were Syrians, and then Afghanistan, Sudan, and Burundi. So these are our top ten. Um, in terms of top 10 health conditions that we identified in the refugees, so dental abnormalities was by far the highest. Um, that included missing teeth, abscess, um, cavities, um, decreased visual acuity, exposure to TB, mental health issues, um, parasites, tobacco abuse, hypertension were among the top 10 health conditions. Um, about 59% of um, the refugees were considered to be overweight or obese. 
So the other, I put this slide here to show that all refugees aren't the same. And there are population-specific diseases, population-specific needs, depending on where the refugees are coming from. So here, the top five health conditions identified among the Syrian refugees included dental abnormalities, anemia, mental health issues, tobacco abuse. Um, for the refugees coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo, among their top five health conditions were exposure to TB, um, parasites, and also mental health issues. So we screen all of them for, for TB, and about 12% of the refugee population um, has exposure to TB or has latent TB. About 1% has, um, has been identified to have HIV. Um, HIV used to be a Class A condition, but I think back in 2010 or 2011, they, they no longer made it a Class A condition, so they don't screen for that prior to them coming to the U.S. Um, so then... Uh, in terms of uh, mental health issues, you can see that Syria, uh, Iraq, Sudan um, were really the countries, uh, the top three countries that screened positive for significant mental health issues and problems. Um, in terms of experiencing torture, Syria, the uh, Republic of Congo, and Sudan, or oh, no, Syria, Burma, and Sudan were the top three that um, experienced torture. Um, in terms of witnessing torture, Iraq, the DRC and Sudan were the top three that witnessed torture. And these are the questions that we use to screen for mental health and then refer them to um, the different uh, mental health services as needed. So as you can see, um, refugee health is really it's complex. And so there really needs to be a unique approach in order to address the varied and the multilateral needs that the refugees bring with them and all the different components of care that they require in order to not only um, help them have good or what good outcomes for their health, but also to help them become successful once they start their new life here in the U.S. So then this really brings me to um, my last portion of my talk, which is um, how do you provide a holistic care for refugees and what approach can you, can you take in, uh, in caring for them. So really uh, what I've done is I've taken um, this approach, the approach that we're using at UofL from Life in Abundance International. It's a nonprofit organization that really has a unique transformational model of development that really empowers the local church um, to serve its people and its community both physically and spiritually. So Really, the idea behind this model is that you not only uh, share the gospel, but through the gospel you meet the felt needs of the people in the community. So it's really uh, representing Christ or doing how Christ showed us by example. So Christ, when he came here, he was not only sharing the gospel and transforming the lives of the people through the gospel, but he was meeting the felt needs of the people. So if you're blind, you know, I'm going to heal you, but he says that I am the light of the world. Or if you're hungry, I'm going to feed you, but man does not live by bread alone. So it's really being able to in incorporate both the spiritual and the physical aspects of, of the person. Um, so LIA has these training sites. There's two training sites, one in Jamaica and one in Kenya, where really individuals or organizations, um, churches, nonprofit organiza organizations can go and um, 
they can learn about these philosophies and these concepts and be able to implement them in the context of where they serve. So I was able to go about a year and a half ago to Kenya and really take part in this training. So at the center of this training or this model is the local church, as you can see here. And with the local church and the gospel really being the driving force um, to bring about transformation and change through development, um, they, they, they use four main components as their model for holistic care. So the first is um, community health. The second is um, education. The third is economic empowerment. And then the fourth is social engagement. So these are really the core philosophies that they utilize. Oh, it went out. So let's see what happened here. I have no idea why that happened. And I am not a tech person, I can tell you that. I've got quite an archaic soul. So is there the, do you know? Okay. Um, so yeah, so while we wait, do you guys have any questions that you can ask in the interim or anything so far? Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of health screening that we're doing, the, the initial arrival screening, we partner with the Kentucky Office of Refugees. So when they get their new arrivals, they kind of disperse those refugees between the, the three different clinics here in Louisville. So if that's something that you'd be interested or clinics would be interested in, that would be how uh, you, you would get those. And then beyond that, um, for primary care, um, you know, it's just in terms of accepting referrals that you can, um, where you can see refugees. Uh, depending on, because a lot of them are Medicaid patients, so, you know, you can, it's a long process, but you can be federally qualified health center um, to help with the reimbursements, but. Yeah, I work at a public center in Michigan. Oh, in Michigan, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so are you guys a primary care office? Okay. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's, that's, I've, I've found that for a lot of refugees, they will decline psychiatric. Okay, great. How did you do that? <laughs> Just in case it happens again. Okay, I got to get ready. You done a bit. Well, if there's one, we can just—is that okay if we just go on with one? And then I see some questions. Let me finish this, and then and then we can take some more questions if that's okay. All right. I think because yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I can just go ahead and start, I think, with this so that we can kind of move on. So, sorry, guys. I'm sure all of you will, maybe not, can sit on this side. But, so, so this, so this is really the core model from which, so what I did was um, I, took, I took this model and this philosophy and tried to fit it in the context of where I work, okay? So then our approach at UofL uh, to care for refugees then begins with the patient really at the center of, um, of our care. And it's really being able then to develop really a, a holistic view of, of the person. So not to see the person as just the sum of their disease. And, you know, back in the era of Descartes, they, there was this severing in, in terms of modern medicine where the mind and the body and the spirit were severed. 
and so the body was just its own entity. And so, but as we care for them, we know that really a person is more than just the absence of disease, right? It's it's both their body, their mind, their spirit, and even their socio-cultural background, all working together towards optimal wellness. So, it's really, so the first point is to view the patient in that kind of way. So, so once you you have that view of the patient, then we need to be able to address the you know population-specific needs of the refugees in such a way that we can provide a sustainable solution. Um, that addresses really all the components of a person's health and really transforms the person from a state of dependence to a state of independence. So for these reasons, um, the core components then of our care included, first, um, community health. And I say community health because um, we know that people don't exist in a vacuum and refugees don't exist in a vacuum. They are very communal. And you can see that if you see your patient admitted to the hospital, like everybody is there for the most part. Their aunts, their uncles, and they're a very communal society. So you can't see them as just severed or apart from their family. So it's being able then to not only address the needs of the refugee at the level of the office or the clinic, but it's being able to go out into the communities and meeting their needs there within the context of their own community. So what we've done is we've actually hired former refugees that serve as health navigators that actually go out into the communities and to look at the communities and address the needs of the communities as, as we or as they identify them. And these health navigators also serve as a link. They're really indispensable, in my opinion, to our clinic because they serve as a link between the patient, the community, and the U.S. healthcare system. So there have been multiple reports that show that part of the disparity to healthcare for minorities is the fragmentation of healthcare. You know, refugees don't understand why you have to go to this location to see a, a pulmonologist and this location to see a, a nephrologist, and this whole fragmentation of healthcare creates a barrier for them to actually access care. So our health navigators are really able to help them try to bridge that and to educate them and to really teach them about the U.S. healthcare system. So that kind of leads me then to my next point, which is that the next component is education. So unless really the, re the refugees are able to learn, they can't grow and develop or be good stewards of their own health. And so education is really a vital component um, for the refugees to have in order for their lives to be transformed here. So providing education not only about health, but even learning the ESL language um, are all parts of uh, the components for education. And then um, the third uh, component is social services. So there are many um, social determinants of health. Okay, great. So there are many social determinants of health that play a significant role, not only in the health of the refugee, but also in how well they acculturate and how well they they uh, are successful to living life here in the U.S. So it's being able then to identify resources, community resources, government programs that will help the refugee not so much create dependence, but really be able to use those resources as a stepping stone for them to become independent. And then um, the third component uh, of, of this model is economic empowerment. So really, unless the chain of poverty is broken, then these refugees are really only leaving one kind of poverty to only enter into a different kind of poverty here. And that's what we see. A lot of them stay in their own communities, you know, some of them on welfare, not able to really move beyond that from where they are. So it's really trying to help the refugees shift, you know, from a mode of survival to a platform where they can thrive 
and, um, and where they can grow. So unless they do that, it will be really difficult to make a lasting impact on their health. Uh, so it's really all of these components working together that um, set the platform really for a holistic approach to care for refugees. So at the University of Louisville, we really try to create a refugee-centered medical home so to kind of address some of these barriers as well to care. So in terms of we provide medical services, so we do the initial refugee health screening. And once we've done the health screening, if they want to stay for primary care, they're able to stay within our system for primary care. And a lot of times, you know, when we identify like latent tuberculosis infection or things like that, we're able to incorporate them into our TB clinic. So they know one bus route, they know that one location, and they feel safe there and we just incorporate and see them for all those services. Other things are, we also have HIV service there, so a lot of our patients that we identify that are HIV, we plug them in with infectious disease, um, which is we're part of the infectious disease department, so for them to be seen for HIV care. Um, in terms of mental health services, um, so we have, you know, psychiatrists and clinical psychologists are able to come and see and, and work with the patients. Um, social services, you know, it's being able to identify those barriers to the health navigators and through partners at the local agencies to uh, really help the refugees overcome those barriers. Um, spiritual services, that's one area that's a little bit more challenging in a university setting. And one of the ways that I've been able to address this is community outreach. What we do is we identify churches and stakeholders that are working with refugees currently or refugee churches uh, through the health navigators and, um, and work with them. So really, um, for this kind of model or approach to work, you can't really do it in a vacuum. Um, you have to have local partners and you have to have um, local stakeholders that are really involved and care for the refugees. So at UofL, you know, we, have part we partner with Kentucky Refugee Ministries, uh, Kentucky Office of Refugees, some churches, nonprofit uh, Christian organizations that are working with refugees to bring in that spiritual component. We also partner with, we, we try to use really the force and the strength of the university to try to address some of these needs of the refugees. So we contacted all the deans of all the schools at the University of Louisville, kind of cast a vision for them. And so we have partnerships with like School of Nursing, a School of Public Health, um, Schools of Arts and Sciences, where you know their knowledge, their capacity can come in and address some of the needs and the gaps that we've identified in the refugees. So this leads me to my final slide, which is that a bundle of belonging is not the only thing that a refugee brings to their new country. So Albert Einstein was actually a refugee that came to the UNHCR. So thank you. take refugees, um, and there's actually a refugee resettlement program there in Tennessee. So um, I can find the website for you and let you know. Yeah. Uh, the other place you can go is ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement. So that's really, that's the federal um, entity that funnels all the refugees and provides funding for all of the, all the states that, that resettle refugees. So Office of Refugee Resettlement. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other talk, yes. I think mental health is one of the most challenging components to caring for refugees because a lot of mental health providers are not trauma-informed, and you really need to have not only trauma-informed care, but trauma-informed care in the context of where they come from that's culturally appropriate. So here in Louisville, there's a very few places. Um, so the Kent School has a, um, a survivors of torture clinic that sees refugees that have they have, pretty, they have pretty good experience with refugees and trauma-informed care. The rest of the places here at U of L, at and Louisville, it's very, it's very little. Yeah. Yeah. So what we've done is, so uh, we're working with Kentucky Office of Refugees, like core the main. Um, entity that really resettles them. We've, uh, they've worked with the people at the Kent School to do training for communities that are seeing refugees. Like the seven counties is one large mental health community in Louisville that sees a lot of refugees but don't really have a lot of trauma-informed care or cultural background to care for them. So we've done like trainings um, with, with those population, with those providers um, to show them what, how do you care for refugees with mental health issues or trauma. Um, the other thing is there's actually a website where you can actually have some national um, trainers under, from ORR come to your state where they can actually train um, uh, mental health providers in refugee care and trauma-informed care. So we've also done that. The website, um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I can, it's like NTCR, I'll give it to you. Like, what, if you just come up here afterwards, I can give you that. And they have a lot of resources. I have some copies here that I can show you of, of how to, that, 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 they've, that they've put out for people in the community that are seeing refugees, but not so much by that knowledge base. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. So um, I think part of um, being trained is to have a knowledge of who are the refugees coming from and what is their background and what is their cultural context because I think a lot of schools, I think, don't have a lot of training on not just the refugee process but the different cultural orientations of the different refugees and their cultural expressions. So I think just even having that basic training will really help uh, when you see a child acting out, or it could be a cultural expression versus what we may see as a tantrum. So I think that's really important for public health uh, teachers and, and staff. Yeah, yeah, I saw you and then you. Yeah. Yeah. The Wilson Fish. Wilson Fish State. Yeah. Oh, really? Texas is one of the large. I didn't know that. You mean the state? So my understanding is that the funding is federal. It comes from the federal government. 
and through Office of Refugee Resettlement. Now, the state, it's, it's usually the entity that receives that funding. So Minnesota is a great example. Like, it's the Minnesota State Department that gets all the funding to resettle refugees. So I'm not very familiar with Texas because all, all agencies are so different. But my thinking is probably that Texas, the State Department was what was receiving the funding for the refugee resettlement. And so maybe similar to what Kentucky did, that originally it was the Kentucky uh, State Health Department that was getting the funding. So once they stopped, it, was, it went to this nonprofit organization. So the funding usually comes from ORR. It's not really from the state itself that, that the funding to resettle refugees comes from. It's from the federal government. Does that make sense?
and with multi-drug resistant, will, be, will we be willing to accept them or something like that and take that on? But um, so usually um, class A conditions don't come, but when they do come, most of the cases it's like active tuberculosis. At that point, we do report them to the health department, and then they start treatment there, but they don't, they're not usually, as far as I know, they're not deported back. Um, and then we've also found cases of active syphilis um, in patients, about 1%. Uh, we, we just report that to the health department, and then um, we just treat them. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. training for primary care in itself or training primary care physicians for mental health?
inter- you mean the refugees? So, yeah, so it, it, it differs between different populations. Um, you know, a lot of times the people coming from Africa or South Congo are a little bit more open to have conversation or some of them are also Christians. Now, when you talk to the Burmese and the Nepalese, it's, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, a lot of them a lot older. And, and the other challenge is that you're always in there with an interpreter. So, so to like in that context of a of a university, it's a little bit more challenging to do that. But outside that context, you know, they're receptive. They hear, and I've shared some gospel with them when I go to their homes and their communities. That's a lot of times where where we do it. Um, but yeah, it's challenging. Anything else? Yeah. a good question. So what are the what are the three resources that she would need? <sighs> so uh, the three things in, in the first visit. So so well in the two cases of Maria, the first thing was really to address like she was really uncontrolled in her insulin dependent diabetic and had no medications. So the first was really to contact pharmacy where we can really get um, those like urgent medications that she needed. So it's really partnering with the pharmacies in your area that can probably give it to her for a period of time until her insurance was active. So the second would be to get her insurance, contact the agencies to get her insurance active because you know for her palpable breast mass or any of those things, she can't get any of those tests. Like nothing moves until you have insurance. That's just the unfortunate reality of the situation. So one of the first things I would do would be try to find a way where they can accelerate, and the agencies can do that. They can help you accelerate the insurance process where they can get it faster if they have uh, So that would be that, uh, addressing the most urgent medications. And then the third would be really trying to educate her on the importance of following up with, with the subspecialties that are needed. Because often they'll see you and then Maria will disappear. <laughs> So, it's, so those will be the top three that I would say. Or the phone is not, yeah, so that's, that's, oh, that's also very good, yes. Yeah, that's a very good point, that's also very good, yeah. Anything else? Okay, thank you.